So welcome to this week's episode of Leaders on a Mission, where I'm joined by inspiring leaders driven by the impact of creating a healthier world. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Virginia Corder, CEO of Moa Technology, an ag tech startup using innovative science, really to help farmers, to help farmers to help feed the world's growing population, really by providing infill crop protection solutions. And Virginia, I've got to know you pretty well over the last few years. It's uh, I've managed to twist your arm and get you to come on the show today. So thanks so much for giving us your time and coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me, Simon. Pleasure. And uh, so maybe let's take it all the way back to a, a young Virginia growing up. And, uh, you know, I'd love to understand um, a little bit more about, I suppose, some of the key forces of your upbringing, some of the, those key you know, uh, things that really help shape the important values and ideals for you Hmm. through your career? So I had a rather nomadic childhood. My father was a historian for the National Park Service in the U.S., so we moved every two or three years to many different regions in the country. So I got used to change very quickly. I also grew up completely immersed in the history of the U.S. as the daughter of a historian and had the chance to volunteer for the Park Service doing living history interpretation where you dress up as a character from the past and tell their story to visitors to the park. So that was a big part of of my childhood. Somehow within that context, very early on, I became completely fascinated by outer space. And that was the other major theme of my youth. I grew up absolutely determined to be an astronaut. I had subscribed myself to the astronaut candidate mailing list when I was 12 or 10, something like that, which I certainly was not the first kid to have done that. But uh, that was really my my dream for a long time. Um, I think they kind of went together. I was so interested in what, what in history made people's lives memorable, what made someone impactful. And I thought adventure and exploration was something that that would do that. And I was really fascinated by space. And I thought that that would be a great thing to do. So I pursued that for a long time. I studied physics and then astrophysics. But along the way, I'd also traveled a lot. And I started to feel like I'd wanted to do something that was a bit more connected to that other part of my upbringing, to history and philosophy and, and people and what was going on on Earth. So. Then my career took a few different turns that brought me all the way from outer space to agriculture, and I haven't looked back. Great, great, great. First of all, tell me about when was the time you fell in love with um, outer space? Can you remember it, that moment where life was never the same? (laughs) I don't know if it's really true anymore. I think it's a story I've told so often that it may have become true in the telling (laughs) rather than in the living. But uh, I, um, I... trace it back to a visit to the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. when I was five. And for whatever reason, I was completely fascinated. And I'm pretty sure I came home with Sally Ride's book for children. She was the first American woman astronaut and a wonderful science educator and has done a lot of fantastic things. But I, I read that book and I knew it. I think word for word by heart. And that's certainly where it started. And then I just found 
not just outer space, but physics so fascinating. Uh, to find a subject that is so strange and is so full of so many mysteries, but that's true. It's about the world you live in. It's not about a fantasy somewhere else. Uh, I think that held my imagination for a long time and still does in many ways. Do you, do you look at the world as a physicist, you know, as you experience life and, uh, you know, are you st- is that the lens that you have at all? <laughs> oh, no, probably not really. Um, maybe sometimes, but uh, maybe what I'd say the way the way that that shaped my view of the world is I found working in astrophysics when I was doing research, most days it was very humdrum. You're sitting there at your computer, you're doing your research, you're down in the details of it. And then there would come moments where you would realize what you were really working on. You're thinking about a cluster of galaxies, which is bigger than anything you could begin to imagine. It's the biggest structure in the universe. So it's hundreds, if not thousands of galaxies, which a galaxy is already much bigger than we can imagine. And and you realize that this isn't just a story and it's not just an abstract concept. It's actually where you live. This very nice, comfortable planet, neighborhood house (laughs) that you're sitting in is part of this much bigger very strange, in some ways quite hostile, but also incredibly beautiful reality. And that it's not actually two separate things. Riding your bike to the lab every day is part of the same universe as this completely bizarre stuff that you're working on understanding. So I'd say that's what has stuck with me, Mm. uh, is that all of this is part of something that is so much bigger and in some ways, some days that makes you feel like it's all very small and insignificant. And some days it fills you at it fills you with awe at uh, that we are creating significance in this tiny little corner mm-hmm. of something that is so big. Brilliant. Well, we'll come back to that part in a sec. I was just thinking the journey on the astronaut side. You know, how, you know, you seem like what we what 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 did you Clearly, you really pursued that with vigor, right? And um, mm. you know what? I can't get the words out. Um, <laughs> what, what, what did you need to do to make the grade, for instance? You know, where did you fall short? Don't I don't know. Um, I, to be honest, I never applied because you know, as I was coming of age, as I went through university and did my PhD, that was the time when manned spaceflight was really being wound down in the US. Now it's picking back up again, which is fantastic. And I'm so excited to see that. But as I saw that, and it was very unclear, even if you could apply to be an astronaut, and if you did, when there would be a vehicle to fly, I decided that there were other things that that I wanted to do. There was also a piece, though, that as I got a little bit older, not very much older, but a little bit older, I realized that you know, making the decision to, to leave the planet is a really big decision. And when I started to think about all of the different things I wanted from my life, I realized that there were other things that I valued as well, uh, which I'm sure is true of, of astronauts as well. So everyone has to make their own decisions and everyone has a different balance of, of what works for them. But 
I started to think that there were things I could do closer to home that were at least as significant um, and that I also found really fascinating. And that's just the route that I ended up going. I still hold out a bit of hope that you know one day there will be a uh, astronaut program for retirees so that I can have a second career and uh, and perhaps still make it to space one day. Is that still an ambition just to get to get to space? I think it would be fantastic, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. And I mean, I think following that, I mean, the, the real common theme in your career, right? You really dedicate yourself to, I think, the renewable, sustainable kind of mission. Even before you got into ag, it was, you know, mm. seemed to be relatively broad. So, tell us a little bit about the transition into that and why it mattered so much to you. Well, it was a gradual transition. Uh, it wasn't entirely deliberate. I think that would certainly be a theme in my career is that uh, I was deliberate about the next step, but not necessarily about where that would go afterwards. Um, So I started working on clean energy technologies fairly soon after I finished my PhD. I did a postdoc and then I got a fellowship to go work for a year as a staffer in the Senate in the US through a program run by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science to bring more scientists into government and policymaking. And I wasn't really sure what I would end up working on. I was very interested in what I would call science policy. How does science interact with policymaking? How can we get better science to policymakers to help inform their decisions, but also understanding that science is not an answer in itself. Science gives you information that then as a policymaker, you have to, you have to use to make the right decisions based on values and priorities and competing interests and a whole lot of things. So I was very interested in understanding that. And I would have been open to working on quite a few different things, but I ended up working on uh, working as a staffer for the energy committee and working on international clean tech, which I liked the international piece because I just come back from doing my PhD in the UK. And it used some of my physics background, at least a little bit in terms of energy production has a certain, obviously clear links to to physics. And that's where I got started. And I found it really fascinating. And it really just built from there. I really enjoyed the work. I thought it was really, really important because already then the science on climate change was clear. Uh, and just the sense that overall, the way that we were, the systems that we had to interact with our planet were stressing it beyond viable limits. And that we had to come up with a new set of solutions for, for the next generation and the generation after. And I found that very exciting and, and very worth working on, as, as so many people, as so many people have and do. Mm. And then I ended up moving from that role into something at the Sahara Forest Project, which was a project that was just getting started, that when I first saw the idea, which they had just started talking about, the, the founders of that, I just thought, that's so cool. If you could get that to work, that would be so fantastic. And, you know, it's it almost seems too good to be true, but then when you started to look at how all the pieces fit together, you could say, yeah, actually, a lot of this really could work. And wouldn't that be 
great to have these sorts of solutions for food and energy and water in ways that were much more efficient and that could serve regions where there are shortages of all of those things. So uh, it just built from there. And uh, I, I really enjoy it and find it a really exciting area to work in and, and would, I think like most of us would like to, to be able to look back at my life and say that something has been made better by the work that I did. And this is a field where I think there's huge opportunity for that. Yeah, absolutely. So it just seemed like you were destined for a world of, you know, in terms of in your career, the mission, the impact, doing something sustainable, doing something, you know, of real value was, you know, it was just clear it was always going to be really important to you, actually. Yeah, no, I'd always want to know that I would always want to have my own reason for doing something. Yeah. Um, and and I've been very lucky that I've been able to find that in quite a few very different fields. Absolutely. And I think the last, tell me, is it about the last seven or eight years within agriculture specifically? So when I moved to agriculture, it was, again, by accident uh, in that where I'd been working on clean energy that moved into projects that brought in water and food as part of the the bigger picture. And what really captured my imagination in working in agriculture was that it's a subject that I think, if you're not very close to it, is widely viewed as being quite mundane. And in some ways, fair enough, we've been growing food for 10,000 years, so it's it's not the newest innovation. On the other hand, what I discovered which other people knew, but I didn't know, was that um, despite it being an incredibly well-established activity, I mean, really the foundational activity of civilization, there are still so many things that we don't know. As I started to work on soil, to discover that actually there are some basic things that we don't know about soil, or that at least we can't predict. We know something about it, but every system is so different and so variable that we still can't make uh, clear predictions and that there's still so much to learn and that the biological systems within soil are still really mysterious to us. And that the more we learn about them, the more bizarre. I mean, any sort of alien fantasy story cannot beat the weird stuff that goes on in soil. Uh, so that just really captured my imagination from a scientific perspective. And then understanding how much pressure the world agricultural system is under and how that interacts with so many other challenges, how land use change is the most important driver, but also the most important tool we have for countering climate change and how all of these things fit together. So I was hooked and uh, and have stayed ever since. No, oh, great. Absolutely. And um, and. So you joined Moa Technology, right? Um, tell me, was it 12, roughly around 12 months ago or have I got my timings out? A little bit more than that, but uh, yeah, early early 2021. Got it. Okay. So tell me a little bit about Moa and uh, specifically around the problems, the problems that you're trying to solve. So Moa is working to solve a really urgent and essential problem that most people have never heard about. And that is that controlling weeds is something that I think most gardeners understand is really essential because if you don't control weeds, they completely take over. And indeed, on a commercial field, you can easily lose 40% of your crop yield, if not even more, 
if you can't effectively control weeds. Um, for decades now, farmers have been able to use herbicides, a range of chemistries that selectively control weeds and leave the crop healthy, either because of natural selectivity or because of modified crops, so that they can grow their crops and get the yields that, that they need to run a profitable business and to generate enough food to feed all of us. There are certainly a lot of controversies around herbicides, but it has been a really essential part of the huge increase in agricultural productivity that we've seen over the last half century or so. What's happening now is that the herbicides that the industry has counted on for many decades are losing efficacy. Uh, and that's because they're facing a challenge very similar to what people may have heard about in the medical space with resistance to antibiotics that because we had tools that worked very well, new ones weren't developed. The same tools have been used over and over. Nature, being clever and resourceful as it is, has evolved responses uh, to those pressures. And now weed populations around the world are showing very significant resistance to the most important classes of herbicides that we have. This is something that the industry is very aware of. There have been concerted efforts for the past 20 or 30 years to try and find ways to solve this, um, but it's really been a struggle. And one way to understand that is there are hundreds of herbicides out there, but you can fit them all into about 20 different categories based on how they work. And that's called a mode of action. So you might have a few different molecules, but if they share a mode of action, that means that that molecule will bind to the same target protein in a weed, work on the same biological pathway to inhibit the growth of that weed in the same way. And there are only about 20 of those um, in the market and, and really ever. So all, all of those 20 were developed and commercialized in the first 30 years or so of widespread herbicide use. By contrast, in the last 30 years, not a single new mode of action area has been commercialized. So farmers have had no new tools to work with in terms of how these chemistries work. The weed populations have seen the same thing over and over again. And this innovation drought is really starting to reach a crisis point where farmers are unable to successfully control weeds. Uh, this is already having significant economic impacts in the UK, for example, farmers already report that their weed control costs have doubled. And we are still really at the beginning of this problem if you look at how the uh, incidence of resistance grows every year. And from a safety perspective, it's not good either because if your compounds, you know, if your herbicides lose efficacy and you don't have anything better, you end up just using more of them. Uh, and a huge part of the safety picture around using any sort of chemistry, be that in agriculture, be that in medicine, be that in many applications, is about using it appropriately in the right location at the right time and at the right dose. And if you have to use more, you're putting more out into the environment, you're not getting the yields you want from your crops and you end up in a, in a cycle that is really not, not what anyone, not farmers, not consumers, not regulators, not anyone wants to see. So the industry is really desperately in need of new solutions, new safe modes of action that can give new tools to farmers so that they can safely and effectively control weeds. And that is what MOA does. MOA is leading the hunt for new modes of action. And that hunt was underway when I joined, uh, but 
has really accelerated in the time that I've been here, building on all the work that had happened before I joined the company. And, and the unique technologies that MOA brings to this project, uh, some really fantastically interesting plant-led approaches that allow us to investigate nature in order to find these new modes of action that have so far proven so elusive. Uh, that approach has proven very, very fruitful, and we have found an abundance of new mode of action areas in, in just a couple years of screening. So that's been a hugely exciting time. How lucky was I to be able to join the company at, at that stage as these results were just starting to come out of, of the pipeline that uh, comes from our, our platforms and, and to get to, to take the company into the next stage as we start to develop those into those safe products that farmers are desperately in need of. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Just one question. Tell me, what was the challenge on why, how so few modes of action were kind of developed in that time period? I was just amazed to hear how many molecules there are, but how limiting the actual modes of action are, basically. It's, uh, there are a few factors. Uh, some, some part of the explanation for why we saw nothing for so long was that in the early years in that period, the commercial environment was not very conducive to finding and developing new things because there were certain products that were so dominant that there wasn't a lot of incentive for innovation. But that's really changed, has changed you know, quite a long time ago. And really, it is that the way that we've always screened for herbicides has always been about looking for herbicidal activity first and then figuring out how it works much later. And that was a great way at the beginning of the industry to find new things because pretty much anything that came out in the early days would be new. And if it had good activity, that was a great starting point. And, and that was a very sensible way to do things. Now, of course, though, we don't need more of the same. And if we use the same approach to screening and finding and developing herbicides that has been used all along, experience has proven that you do just find more of the same. You may find new chemistries, but they'll work with those same modes of action that have been found and developed many times before. Uh, so the industry has really struggled to find new modes of action because it didn't actually have a way to specifically look for them. It was looking for herbicides. And then much later, after a lot of time and a lot of money had been invested, getting to the answer of, what well, is this working in a new way or not? And almost always the answer was no. Uh, so while certainly new modes of action have occasionally been seen in industry, and certainly there has been work to develop them, there just haven't been very many. And so if you run into a problem, either because it's not as safe as you would, would demand that it be, or because you're not able to get the activity level that you need to make it viable commercially, you just have one option and you don't have a whole, you know, a whole uh, pipeline of, of alternatives to work on. And that's where MOA has really changed the story because using this plant-led approach that uses these very special miniaturized living plants, we can screen hundreds of thousands of chemistries a year asking what is now the most important question first. We can ask at the first screen after a few days and a few dollars, is this working in a new way that would lead to herbicidal activity? So 
we're able to search for exactly what is required. And that means that we are finding things that have not been found, found before and an abundance of starting points and opportunities that that is unprecedented. Wow. So how many modes of action are there out there? You think? Uh, what's the possibility? <laughs> oh, well, we don't know. <laughs> uh, the only thing I could say to that is that um, as a physicist who has moved into biology, the, uh, the possibilities in biology seem quite endless. So uh, while it's certainly not truly infinite, um, certainly the variety and um, potential in nature is, is huge. And that's why we are so focused at MOA at an empirical search where we use these plants to show us new areas to work on. Before MOA, there was a lot of effort to predict what could be a new herbicide target and to try to pursue that. And there have been some very interesting projects on that, but so far that has not produced new new herbicides. Uh, We're letting the immense diversity and creativity of of the plants that we work with um, lead the way. And they are showing us a lot of new areas to to work in that that have not been looked at before. Fantastic. Fantastic. So tell me a little bit about where you see the future, you know, in terms of you've mentioned the journey, you've mentioned around the progress with, you know, some of these really exciting modes of action. Can you say anything about, for instance, about either the crops that you're developing, um, you know, weeds for, and then, you know, what, what, what your, I suppose your dreams are for MOA? Absolutely. So we are developing products for all of the major crops in that we are agnostic in the early stages of our pipeline. We are looking for chemistries. And I think it's important to say we work with synthetic chemistries, but we also work with a lot of natural chemistries too. We screen natural product libraries. Our platform is particularly well suited to that. So we are looking both for classic synthetic herbicides, but also bioherbicides, because we think both will have an important role to play going forward. And we we are really looking for things that work, that are good at controlling weeds. And then once we find those, we start profiling them and we look at what crops could you use these in because they're selective for those crops? What would be the best application? Uh, Of course, we're focused on the biggest crops because that's where you'll see the biggest impact. So we look at cereals, we look at soy, we look at corn, we look at rice, Um, but, but we are still very much agnostic and just looking for things that can work across pretty much any any important crop. Uh, give me a couple of years and we'll be able to say more about what our lead candidates are expected to work on. But right now we've got quite a diverse early mm. portfolio. In terms of it, where we're going with MOA, a really important part of the sustainability story around what we're doing is about what you do with the tools that we find. So we are finding new chemistries. We put very high demands on them in terms of safety and environmental sustainability. But as with most tools, a huge part of their overall sustainability and safety profile is about how you use them. And just as an example, to avoid 
new resistance emerging. That very much depends not just on the chemistry you have, but on how you deploy it. If you use it the same way that we've used the herbicides of the past, you can drive resistance in just the same way. So what we really need is we need a new toolbox full of good, safe tools and a new approach to using them that is better for the environment and that also is better at protecting the value and the efficacy of those tools so that we can continue to use them, farmers can continue to count on them, and we can continue to grow the food that, that we need. So when we think about where we're going with MOA, we do think about individual products, but we also think about a portfolio of new mode of action herbicides. And really, it's the abundance of our pipeline that allows us to dream of a whole portfolio. Mm. Already, a single new mode of action herbicide would already be uh, very big news in the industry and big news for us as a company because there hasn't been one in 30 years. But if we really want to change change the, the overall framework around herbicide use, we're going to need more than one. And that's something that we have the potential to do. And that's really what, what we aim to do. As for how we take that to market, we're still looking at lots of options. We believe that crop protection and indeed agriculture project that involves many people and many different parts of the supply chain working together to build a system that will really serve the needs of our generation and the generations to come. So we're very open to collaboration. We look at partnerships, um, but we also see the potential, whether it's through licensing, whether it's through joint ventures, whether it's through other pathways, that we could, because of the prolific pipeline that we see coming from our platforms with the right partners, consider um, creating a new entrant in, in the space. So it's a very exciting adventure to be on. And there are quite a few different ways that, that it could go. But what we absolutely see is that we have the potential to really offer very significant solutions to farmers now and, and help shape what that next generation of safe and sustainable crop protection solutions will look like and how they're used. Oh, it sounds, um, sounds very exciting. Yeah, it really does. We and think have, so. And you had some great news recently, right? I saw, I noticed, I think over the last couple of weeks, you kind of announced a, a series kind of bee funding, which is, uh, which is great news. So tell us a little bit more about that. That's right. We just a couple of weeks ago announced our Series B fundraise, which was a, a 35 million pound round with uh, a very exciting new lead investor accompanied by all of our all of our existing investors. So a lot of excitement within our investor group about, about the future of the company going forward. And uh, we're, we're thrilled about that round. It's a big milestone for us. It gives us the opportunity to take this abundance of starting points that have come out of our platform so far and start to push those forward and really prove that they can become commercial products that will end up on farmers' fields, helping farmers solve this problem and grow, grow the the safe and healthy food that 
we all count on them to grow for us. Great, and congratulations. Uh, congratulations on that. And uh, So how many people Thank work you. at the company at the moment? Just oh, right. I always lose track because we're hiring quite quickly. <laughs> We're somewhere between 40 and 50 at the moment. Got it. Okay. Okay. No, great. And uh, and I suppose as CEO of the, the business, um, I, shaping and building culture and values, no doubt, is really important for you. Have you, you know, as coming in, have you had to do much shaping and driving around that? Or has it been picking mm-hmm. up on uh, what was existing already? Well, I was very lucky. The, the company had a great culture when I arrived. But of course, we've grown very quickly, even in that period. We were under 20 when I arrived, and now we're between 40 and 50. And as any company grows, you have to be, I think, very conscious about how your culture develops, because culture with 15 people is quite different than culture with 50. And so it is something that that we really think about culture and values. I mean, for us, we are a mission-driven company. We want to bring good solutions to farmers. We want to make sure that they can do their job, which we all count on them to do, and that we're meeting the demands of consumers, of society, of ourselves, that the products that we're bringing forward are ones that we are really proud of uh, and that will make a positive contribution towards improving the overall sustainability of the, the sector as well. And that's something that that is really important within the company. and. And in terms of culture, and that's a huge piece of it, but to me, it's also, we are a research-driven company. We're still making fantastic discoveries all the time and making sure that we maintain that environment where, of course, we we are guided by the commercial imperatives and not just the commercial imperatives, but the, the broader imperative that these products really need to get to market because there's such a demand for them. Uh, But still maintaining that creativity that we're able to see those slightly tangential solutions um, that grow out of the core work that we do and that can turn into other other great innovative solutions Mm. down the road. So we really make sure that we keep both of those. Yeah, you're at that point of being able to harness the hope from the innovation, the work, the science and the innovation as well. Who knows where it will end up going or who knows where the discoveries will will find themselves. But it it does sound like, uh, you know, it's a really exciting, um, you know, uh, place to work. And I suppose just at the juncture of where you guys are at the moment, uh, it must be an exciting, um, exciting story. Well, I certainly think so. But I, I mean, I must admit, I am I'm a complete junkie for research science. I I completely love the highs and thus will tolerate the lows of research because I'm my my whole team knows I'm very much like a kid waiting for Christmas when we have experimental results due, be that field trials, be that glasshouse trials, be that uh, an interesting genetic assay that we're looking at. I just cannot wait <laughs> for the results. And of course. They break your heart as often as they make you jump up and down. But that's that to me is the really thrilling part. Um, and we are finding these things that have such commercial potential that can solve such an important problem. And that's really exciting. But the way that we're finding them also has this really fundamental biology to it. That means that we, we have those moments that I think 
all researchers have and it's what keeps you going I think where you feel like you're trying to look through a window but it's completely blacked over and you can't see what's going on and you get a result that has sort of scraped off one little bit of paint where you can start to peek through and get a little bit of a view of what's going on and bit by bit you start to feel like you are peeking into a part of nature that that really hasn't been seen before and that's that's just fantastic so I think it's really exciting that we we really have both of those. We're, we're developing things where we can see very clearly that this is going to solve a very concrete problem that is in urgent need of a solution while still getting into to engage with science that is just exciting in its own right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like drug discovery comes to agriculture, isn't it, really? That's like, right. <laughs> yeah, that's a great description. Yeah, it really is. And uh, tell me, if someone from drug discovery was considering a career in, uh, you know, for MOA, for instance, well, why, you know, what would, what are the major differences or why would someone come and join MOA now, do you think? Hmm. Well, there certainly are, there certainly are differences. I think, obviously, if you're working on plants rather than people, that's, uh, that's a big change. But Interestingly, and, and this was something that I really learned coming into the field um, just a, a couple years ago, the, the ways that we search, and especially the way that MOA searches for these modes of action, have a great deal in common with the way that we search for new medicines, for new treatments, for, for human disease. And many parts of the biology have a great deal in common. We're really thinking about what proteins can we target? What will interact with those proteins in efficient ways? What is the safety of that interaction? And a lot of, uh, there's really a lot of overlap when you get to that level. Um, something that might prove interesting if you're coming from a drug discovery background is that the advantage of working with plants rather than people is that you can test in your subject from much earlier on. So we, uh, we have the advantage that we can look at the activity in weeds quite early. And so uh, we get that early feedback into the cycle and can, can optimize and, and get, to, um, get to those optimized solutions that we need, perhaps, perhaps even more quickly, or at least with less mm -hmm. risk further down the road. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think while agriculture and medicine would pretty much anyone be viewed as completely different fields. Uh, not only is it that the research process actually has a great deal in common and that the biology has a lot in common, feeding the world is a really, really fundamental part of ensuring human welfare and health. It's also a huge part of ensuring the health of our ecosystems. Agriculture, as we all know, is an incredibly important part of the story more broadly about sustainability, but certainly about climate and about so many other things. And making sure that we can continue to feed ourselves and feed the world in a way that is compatible with maintaining a healthy world overall is a huge challenge. I think it is the challenge of our generation, though I'm sure others could, could nominate challenges for that position. But it's, it's an incredibly important, incredibly difficult thing that we're trying to do. What we're doing at MOA is one small piece of that, but it's an important piece. And it really will 
be an important contributor, the whole project of making sure that we can feed everyone safely and sustainably is going to be such an important part of the story of having a healthier world and healthy people in it. That uh, I would argue the two fields aren't aren't as far apart as they might look on the surface. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just in terms of, I mean, clearly like the ag tech world is evolving with all sorts of technologies and solutions out there, but it seems that you guys are really novel in what you're doing, right? And, um, you know, the, the approach is, you know, is really uh, unique. Um, yeah, just, just, I mean, have you seen comparable technologies that other firms are using? I suppose the question is, what what is the one or two things that are really specifically related to kind of MOA, as it were? Hmm. Well, the number one headline is that we, at least as far as we know, we're really the only company out there that is exclusively focused on these new modes of action. There are certainly a few companies looking at new chemistries, but typically more in mode of action areas that are already known. There are certainly other companies looking at new approaches to crop protection. And I think those are very, they're exciting. And like we said, it's a collaborative project. We're going to need more than one, more than one tool in the toolbox to be able to solve the challenges we have ahead of us. But this focus on new modes of action that can open up whole new areas uh, for crop protection, be they bioherbicides, be they synthetic herbicides with really good portfolio, be they, um, sorry, with a, a very good profile, be they our portfolio of solutions that we can deploy in a new way. Uh, it, it's that focus on the novelty of mode mm-hmm. of action that really sets us apart in terms of what we're doing. Uh, and then because of that, the science that we're using is also quite unique because we are uh, taking these tools that came out of some very fundamental research at the University of Oxford and deploying them to be able to find these new modes of action, to be led by the plants, to find the uh, the secrets that nature has not yet revealed about the, the pathways and the targets that we could that we could develop that could help us control weeds for the future. Oh wow, yes, it's fantastic. And uh, just to finish off, a couple of quick fire questions for you, uh, just to finish off with. Um, what about some, tell us about some great advice you've received. <laughs> oh, goodness. So if you'll let me, I said there, there were two pieces of advice that were essential, one that I took and one that I ignored. Um, <laughs> so one was... Um, Early on in my academic career, focus on one thing. Don't get distracted by extraneous subjects and ideas. And I completely ignored that one. Uh, And I think that 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 was good advice to ignore because I find, at least for me, that creativity comes from having this diversity of subjects and fields. And we think about that in MOA where we think about bringing people in from different backgrounds. But uh, even more broadly, I think if you want to think about agriculture, you should be thinking about history and philosophy, as well as food production and plant science. Um, And, but on top of that, the good advice that I got was uh, 
at one point where I was doing so many of these things, I, I had a project, a research project that I just was never getting to the lab. And I kept you know, every week I had a great reason why I couldn't get there. Oh, I can't come because I have to work on this. I can't come because I have to do this. And finally, my research supervisor said, look, all those excuses are perfectly valid, but ultimately you have to decide, are you doing it or not? Because at the moment you're pretending you're doing it and you're not really doing it. So go it, you know, do it for real, give it the real effort or put it on the shelf for another time when you can really give it the attention it deserves. And I think those two pieces of advice, one ignored and one assiduously followed have uh, proven very useful. <laughs> Great. And final question is, well, what have been the biggest learning slash challenges to date as a first time CEO? Ah, an interesting one. Well, perhaps it's uh, it's looking even past being a CEO, but I think I've become really aware of it, which is you know, having had this somewhat nomadic life, uh, if I if I had things to do again, I would make sure that I had stayed in better contact with many of the different people and places that I'd been throughout my career, because I think one of the things about being a CEO, or I think probably a lot of other roles too, is that suddenly you have so many challenges to solve. And it's such a diverse set of things that uh, having a really diverse network of people you can call on and say, I really have no idea about this, but you know about this. So could we have a call about it and figure out what we should be doing uh, is really invaluable. and. I'm very lucky that I've had quite a lot of that, but I also look back and, and especially when you're in that early career phase where you're moving from job to job every year, despite a lot of good efforts, it's quite easy to, to lose touch with people. And uh, I think keeping that, keeping that, that network strong is, uh, is really essential because I've certainly leaned on mine a lot <laughs> in this, in this period. Great. Okay, that's great stuff. And um, look, it's been a great uh, conversation. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing so openly. Really enjoyed our discussion today and best of luck for the future. Well, thank you, Simon. I've really enjoyed it as well.